Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Ben Ryder a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, and the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. He joined SI in 2004, a few years out of college, and has written for them ever since. In 2014, Ben wrote a cover story for SI entitled Your 2017 World Series Champs, featuring the then-sorry Astros who were the laughing stock of baseball at the time. Three years later, his prediction came true. His book chronicling the journey has been dubbed Moneyball 2.0. 
Our conversation blew me away in how closely the parallels have been between baseball management and fundamental investing over the last 15 years. From the incorporation of data to the challenges in managing people, I suspect if you just change the names of the players and the labels for the process, this could be a full-blown conversation about investing. Baseball may even be ahead of the data revolution in investing, and the story of the Astros could hint at lessons that money managers will need to apply going forward. This week, when getting ready to listen to this episode, why not put on your favorite team's baseball cap and wear it proudly to the office? When your colleagues ask what you're doing, just respond, I'm bringing positive energy to our team, like I heard worked for the Astros last year on the Capital Allocators podcast. You should have a listen. Thanks for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Ben Ryder. Ben, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a blast. I've been looking forward to it. Everyone who listens knows I'm a baseball fan. So why don't we start with how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I went to Yale for college. I did a lot of writing there. I took a class as a senior, a kind of advanced nonfiction writing class with this guy named Fred Streeby who really knows what he's doing and can get kids inspired about this sort of pursuit. After that, I really thought, hey, I want to write somewhere, something. I liked sports. I didn't necessarily know it would be sports. Went to graduate school over in Cambridge, England, in international relations. So came back here to the States, got an internship at the Village Voice, working for this guy named Wayne Barrett, who's this classic, crusty old New York investigative journalist Wayne believed that the axis of New York evil was Al Sharpton, Rudy Giuliani, and Donald Trump. And he, in fact, wrote books about the latter two. I mean, really, when Trump was running for president, people from all over the country would flock to Wayne's house in Brooklyn because he knew everything about this guy. He knew everything. Wayne got very ill and actually died the day before Donald Trump was inaugurated. So he didn't leave to see that. But that was incredible training as far as any type of journalism, as far as digging and digging and being relentless about who you call and, you know, never stopping trying to get the story. Still, you know, it's hard to get a job. I kind of sent resumes around, met everybody I could. Finally, I got an offer from Sports Illustrated to come in as a fact checker, entry level researcher on a temporary basis. So, yeah, man, I jumped at it. It's Sports Illustrated. I like sports. I wanted to write. It made sense. And, you know, that was 2004, and now it's 2018. So uh, it seems like it's a good, been a good place for me. How did you come about writing this book? It really started in 2014. You know, I was drawn to the story, the Astro story, by the same thing that everybody else was drawn by, which is that they were just so unbelievably, historically, ludicrously bad. Right, like total train wreck, <laughs> worst team over a three-year stretch since the expansion Mets. Not nearly as lovable as the lovable you yeah. lose. It just seemed like a total disaster, dumpster fire almost down in Houston. But I knew something else. I didn't know them well, but I knew that the guys who were running the front office, particularly Jeff Luno, uh, had had a lot of success in St. Louis in overhauling that scouting department. Some say that by some metrics, he was the best scouting director in the seven years he was there, of any scouting director, as far as picks he made that turned into big leaguers. There's a count of that. So I wanted to see how it added up. How does a guy who seems to know what he's doing oversee such a terrible team? And what is the big idea here? Is there 
even a big idea here. Well, I didn't think I would write any sort of story about such a team unless we got some sort of unusual access to it, you know, unless they kind of let us in to what they were doing, let us into their front office to a degree that most wouldn't. So it took about a year of negotiations. The only thing I promised them was I'm going to come in, I'm going to be open-minded. You know, I, I don't have an agenda. Like I'm not one of these people who's been killing you from afar. I just want to see what you're up to. And that was attractive to them at that point because they were getting killed everywhere just to maybe show a little bit of what they were doing. So I went in there for a few days. I sat in their draft room. I sat in their draft meeting right next to Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio and guys like that. And I came away thinking this is not a team that's run cynically or ineptly or an organization that has no idea what it's doing. It's an organization that has a very strong idea of just what it's doing. And its plan was one that was new to me. And I thought it was pretty intriguing. So what was that plan at the time? The plan is strangely almost exactly, at least from a, a larger scale what they ended up doing. You know, yes, they had the most advanced analytics department I'd certainly ever been around. I'm sure it's it remains up there with any in baseball, probably any in, you know, many industries, right? They have a team of PhDs and people from all sorts of disciplines who operate in the nerd cave is what they've called it, right? This dark room. I actually didn't go in the nerd cave. I was stood outside the nerd cave. It's very dark, a lot of blinking lights in there. But that's their analytics department, right? So they can parse every number that you have, and they were ahead of the game for a long time. The part that was really intriguing to me, though, was that they weren't just parsing performance data. You know, this is beyond Moneyball stuff. Everybody knew by now that, you know, OBP is better than batting average, things like that. But there's a lot more data to handle, and they were doing it. But they were bringing in source of information that had been kind of overlooked recently, especially in sports, which was information that comes from humans, you know, human observation, human gut, human instinct. After Moneyball, we were taught to think that numbers are far superior to describe almost any situation than human intuition, because humans are biased, humans are flawed, can't be trusted. The Astros recognize that humans can detect things, especially in players, that numbers can't describe, that there aren't numbers for. And the trick is to properly process those observations and incorporate them with the performance data to kind of get the best out of both man and machine. What were some examples of that? For example, you know, scouts, right? Scouts have long graded players on a 20 to 80 scale. 80 being, you know, super Hall of Famer, 20 being probably me, right? Like (laughs) no skills, (laughs) no skills whatsoever. But they've assigned these grades to all sorts of characteristics of players for a long time. And there's records of these grades, right? He's got a 50 arm. He's got a 60 for contact. They also assign them for things like like makeup in particular. Makeup is what baseball people call what you and I would probably call character, right? It's adaptability, grit, drive, ability to work as a team, ability to improve. That's one that is very hard to describe with other numbers. I mean, it's hard to see that in OBP or OPS or things like that. That's something that scouts, having gotten to know these players as people themselves and dug into their past, met their coaches, met their families, have gotten a sense of, right? So you have all these numbers, but then you can see the track record. Say the scout is given a 60 makeup to 99 past players, right? How have those players turned out, really? And then, so if he gives another 60 to another player, how would that 100th player turn out? You can kind of run regression analyses on these things and backtest them. Of course, it's only one piece of the puzzle, right? The idea is to combine things like makeup with OBP and fastball and all that to 
end up with one number essentially to help you make one decision on a player, like yes or no. It's just expanding the data set and the universe of inputs that you have to hopefully make a better decision. And then as those decisions accumulate along the way to help you make you know, marginally more correct decisions over the years than your competition. It's really hard for me to listen to this and not draw these parallels with investing, right? So Moneyball comes out in 2003, and that really was the trigger of releasing this concept of using data, right, what the Azard and Billy Beam was doing. Dave Swenson, in our business, wrote his seminal work in 2000, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, people in the investment world started investing in alternatives because that's what Yale was doing, and it was working. What happened from, say, 2003 when Moneyball comes out and the A's maybe are one of the few games in town or Paul DePodesta or the people who'd worked for Billy Bean were trying to do it, to like over that next decade or decade and a half until what happened with the Astros played out? Right. Well, I mean, certainly it wasn't just the A's who had made this realization by the time Moneyball came out, right? There were other teams at the... Uh, Red Sox under Theo Epstein, certainly. The Cleveland Indians were always very far ahead of this. Uh, Other teams as well. But, and it probably took longer than you would think it did. Eventually, everybody got on board, right? But it wasn't right away. It was right away for a team like the Cardinals, where Bill DeWitt, who's the owner of the team, very successful investor himself, read Moneyball or was made aware of Moneyball and very quickly said, you know what? I know that we're the second most successful baseball team there is behind the Yankees, but this is going to provide us an edge going forward. This is how we're going to innovate even on top of our success. So he brought in Jeff Luno from McKinsey and from the tech world, which is where Jeff worked, although he was always a big baseball fan. was connected with him by his son-in-law, someone that Jeff knew from McKinsey, brought him in to run the scouting department. That was right away, essentially. Even within the Cardinals, you got a lot of pushback. Baseball is a very traditional environment. It's very difficult to change cultures, especially a culture that worked, which is what everybody with the Cardinals believed theirs did because they were the Cardinals. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the traditionalists hated it. Like, and what were those types of pushback? It was very personal, actually. I mean, yes, it was don't listen to this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But it was also, you know, freezing him out when he walked into a room, calling him Harry Potter behind his back. At one point, it got to the point where um, DeWitt was going to fire somebody in the front office who just wouldn't get on board with this whatsoever, somebody pretty high up. And that day, he asked Luno to go work off-site in case after he fired this guy, the guy went after him and tried to fight him. Like, things were pretty, pretty (laughs) tense there for Jeff and for the guy he brought on as his stats man, Sig Meidel, who had an interesting background of his own I get into in the book as a former blackjack dealer and a NASA rocket scientist. But look, Bill DeWitt kind of forced the issue in St. Louis. There were other organizations that had success and didn't have this happen, right? They kind of continued doing things their way. For a long time, it was tradition versus modernity, you know, numbers versus man, humans versus computers. One team is the computer team, one team's the human team, which one's going to win? And the advantages to the computers, right? When that's the question you're asking, if you have a systematic way of analyzing data, you can have an advantage, certainly, over humans. And the Astros guys now say that back when they're in St. Louis, they view it as kind of these days when they were alone at the buffet, right? Just getting these huge advantages in all sorts of ways on the data alone. Well, eventually everybody caught up. 
And it wasn't actually that long ago. It was about two years ago that the Detroit Tigers, for example, had like one part-time analyst on their whole staff. Two years ago. It was like maybe 2015 or going into 2016. They've since caught up. They hired somebody from Apple. They're up to speed. They have their own database now. But that's a long time after Moneyball. Yeah. But look, now the landscape has flattened. So the Astros innovation is where was the next advantage. And it was not just turning to computers when everybody now is able to take advantage of the data. It's going beyond that. Like, where's the next source of predictive information coming from? Oh, look, we have these scouts who are longtime baseball men. They probably know a thing or two that computers can't, can't analyze. Yeah. You get into the locker room and you write this, what's now kind of infamous cover piece for Sports Illustrated in, was it 2014? 2014. That predicted the Astros would win the World Series in 2017. That's right. How did people respond to that at the time? You have like the last place team and you're predicting they're going to win the World Series. At first, at, at first it was very negative. I think I underestimated how much anger there was out there about what the Astros were doing, right? I mean, Where, And what was that anger from? Particularly in Houston, I think, you know, the idea of tanking People hated it, especially in Houston, people who love the Astros since they were founded in the early 60s. You know, they can't even go to the games. You can't even watch the games. They're just so bad. 106 losses, 107 losses, 111 losses. You know, Alex Trebek is making fun of the team on Jeopardy. It's a laughing stock, right? But the point is they were tanking on purpose. They were, but that's hard to kind of wrap your mind around in the moment, especially when there's no promises that it's going to work, right? I mean, so there was that. Then there was also this general feeling that they were inept, you know, like they're making all these promises. There's no promise here. This could be this, this way for 10 years. So people were very upset about this prediction, given that situation on the ground. But look, I wrote a 5,000 word cover story based on my time with them. And, you know, obviously stepping back from it as well and taking stock of what they were trying to do to support that prediction. It wasn't something that we threw out there just to be controversial, you know, just to get some headlines or something. There's real reasoning behind it. We felt as if three years down the line, which is actually a long time in baseball terms, it doesn't sound like a long time, but often if you look at the schedule, at the standings from like three years ago, they're almost upside down from where they are today. We thought that the Astros would have had time to accumulate enough of these very well-measured decisions based on all sorts of data that they could turn things around in a very serious way. And, you know, that's more or less what happened. So there's this question, there's always this question of luck versus skill and process versus outcome. And you've talked a lot about process versus outcome the same way people do in investing. And yet, part of the reason you dove into writing the book was because it was process and outcome. Yeah, that's a bit of an irony. I always love Travis Chachek's book, Big mm -hmm. Data Baseball which came out, I guess, four years ago. Pittsburgh Pirates, similar kind of Moneyball 2.0 concept. What's different about how the Astros did things than the Pirates or Verducci's book on the Cubs from last year? I think it's really the purity and the depth to which they went to apply these ideas, first of all. I mean, part of the reason people were so mad about it was because it was so extreme. And I think people thought it was arrogant, right? They're often accused of being arrogant, but they had such a confidence in their system that <laughs> they kind of went far beyond what almost any other team, what almost any other fan base, what almost any other owner would stomach, which I think was one of the reasons that they had such great results, you know, results that the Pirates never quite attained. I also just think that this concept of blending human inputs with data inputs, yes, like they've come up with a incredibly integrated way of doing it. 
But that's not where it ends. You know, that's that doesn't explain everything. There are certain wrinkles of fate. There's a lot of room for luck in their process. And I talk about in the book some of the ways they got lucky and some of the ways they got unlucky. But I really think what tipped them ultimately was the fact that essentially their gut was what made the final call. Like Jeff Luno making informed but gut decisions to really put the finishing touches on this champion, whether you look at acquiring Justin Verlander with two seconds to go before the waivers deadline <laughs> on August 31st last year. And I tell that story in this book, kind of like a TikTok taking you through how that happened. That was essentially like a gut feel. Like, yeah, there were some analytics supporting it. A lot of analytics suggesting you should not do this. Like, this is a 35-year-old pitcher you're giving up three prospects for. He's making you know $26 million a year. This is not a smart move. But he did it. Bringing in Carlos Beltran, recognizing that a 40-year-old, you're paying $16 million. Again, that's not something that any analytics would suggest. Yes, there's a great track record of success for doing this. But Luno sensed that there is this unquantifiable lack in his clubhouse of chemistry, of leadership. And he's smart enough to know just because you can't quantify it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. He made that decision too. So it's really not just about a team that has found a rigid system by which to win. Although, you know, that certainly is the underpinnings of everything. It's about human beings who are essentially making big calls when it mattered most that they worked out. Yeah. And where does that seesaw tip? Because, again, the, the corollary with quantitative investing is a good one in the sense that there's this sense that this works because of the discipline to the data, because of the willingness to be long term. And yet, at the end of the day, we all point to the exceptions to those rules. That's right. Well, that's you know probably where the greatest successes come from. I think there's probably a lot of great failures that come from that too. So that's the risk. I guess the idea is if the data landscape has flattened, if everybody has the same numbers to same, some degree, everybody's kind of got their same processes, where are you going to make a difference, right? Where can you win, essentially? And you know, a lot of that comes down to what you can't quantify. It comes down to your gut. But certainly that's where a lot of risk comes in, too, because when you depart from these models, you're introducing a great deal of volatility. And as you know, in your line of work, volatility can work both ways. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to dive into some of the aspects of the book. So let's start with talking about tanking. My favorite corollary of late is the, the Philadelphia 76ers, yes. where you know they had this great season, but it was shortly after the architect of the process got booted out of the seat. What worked in baseball for the Astros? Like what part of tanking worked for them that you know other teams haven't didn't, weren't able to do at the time? I think it might work. I mean, it worked for the Sixers eventually, right? I think, I mean, who knows, but it still might work for the Cleveland Browns. But you're right. Sam Hinkie was fired before he could see it through. And the Browns fired their GM as well, Sashi Brown before they could see it through. So I think one of the things that really set the Astros apart was patience, you know, was was a stomach for the embarrassment and the torture that they had to go through for all those years and a confidence in it, right? Not to deviate from the plan. A lot of the credit for that has to go to Jim Crane, who's the owner of the team. Uh, this was the plan that Jeff Luno presented to him when he sat down with him in 2011 to interview for the job. He made like a 22 or 23 page essentially guide to what they were going to do and why they had to do it. Why they had to do it was largely because the cupboards were so bare when they arrived there. 
They had the worst major league team with like very few assets whatsoever. And they had recently been ranked as the worst minor league team. Obviously, there were a few minor league system, I should say. Obviously, there were a few pieces who would develop into something. George Springer, Dallas Keuchel, Jose Altuve. But they didn't have anything there either. They're coming into a, to a franchise with no assets. So what do you do? This is what how we saw it going forward. And it was terrible. It was embarrassing. You know, Jim Crane was kind of a pillar of the Houston community. You know, probably couldn't go out much for several years. But uh, he stuck with it. And I caught up with Jim Crane on the field in Los Angeles after game seven. And I said, you know, like, did you ever for a minute get cold feet about any of this? He said, he said, he looked me in the eye. I mean, obviously, he's not going to say anything else in this particular setting. But he said, you know, I told Jeff every day the plan, stick to the plan, stick to the plan. And that's what he did. So that's certainly a lot of faith from uh, from a guy like that. Do you think there's something different than his constitution from other owners? I think there could be. Yeah. I'm not sure I know enough about, well, I know something about Jimmy Haslam of the Browns, but I don't know enough about maybe some of the other owners. But look, he is somebody who arrived in Houston in a U-Haul from college, his first company called Eagle Logistics. There were two employees, receptionist and himself, right? So he built this business of his into, uh, you know, one that Fortune 1,000 business, shipping and logistics. Now he's got a whole portfolio of them. So he certainly has patience. And also being in that business, he kind of understands the power of data and things like that to make a real difference. You mentioned fan pressure, media pressure. What are the other pressures that an owner would face in being a team like the Mets are this year? (laughs) Well, the Mets aren't bad on purpose, right? (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) But uh, certainly there was probably pressure from around the league because of what he was doing. Maybe not the other owners. They tend to act as a club, as we know, more or less. But yeah, fighting off the union and media who were kind of ripping him for running a payroll that was under $30 million at one point, like embarrassingly low. His argument would be we're saving for the future when we, we're not going to waste money on a team that's going to lose anyway. We're going to pay money to a team that's going to win. And to his credit, that's what he's done. I mean, the payroll has, you know, it's still around the league median, but there's room to grow and it certainly will have to grow as a lot of these young stars as it comes time for them to get paid. But yeah, I mean, there's pressure from everywhere. There's social pressure. There's business pressure. No one's coming to the park. I don't know if you're losing money because the payrolls are so low, but you're certainly not making a lot of it either. And how about scouting? So you talk a lot about in the book about Carlos Correa and that process. What did the Astros do to improve effectively their R&D? Yeah, well, Carlos Correa, in some ways, is the central decision that they made. This book, Astro Ball, is really about you know nine of the key decisions that they made along the way, of the many thousands that took them from seller-dweller to champion. Correa is, in some ways, the key one. This was their first number one overall draft pick in 2012. They didn't want to blow it. And they picked somebody who nobody saw coming as the number one pick. By the time of the draft, Correa was maybe top 10. Some team had some teams had him as high as six. There's a long distance between six and one. But they picked him one. He wasn't re- regarded that highly in large measure because of the track record, not of himself, but because of players who were coming from Puerto Rico recently like he was. We think of Puerto Rico as this baseball hotbed. You know, Roberto Clemente, Edgar Martinez, Padre Rodriguez. For a long time... There was no talent really coming off the island whatsoever. And here you have a high schooler, 17-year-old, coming from this place where he doesn't have very good competition, where nobody else has come and had any success, whose whatever performance data you have on him is definitely unreliable. I mean, high school data is unreliable anyway for them, but coming from Puerto Rico is just like, who knows? 
So that was really a scouting call. And it was a scouting call of following him for years and years. And also, you know, sitting down. Jeff Luno is bilingual. He grew up in Mexico, although he's American. He sat down with Correa's parents and spent time with them and spoke with them and learned about how Correa, every day of his childhood, spent two hours with his dad practicing baseball, no matter what. It was usually the kid pulling the dad out to the diamond. Learned about how when he was eight years old, he requested that his parents send him to a bilingual school because he would watch on TV and see how the Spanish-speaking players looked awkward and uncomfortable when they were giving their post-game interviews through a translator. And he said, when I'm a baseball star, I want to be able to give mine in English. This is when he's eight. (laughs) To Luno, you know, this is the sort of unquantifiable, like grit, drive, growth mindset type of things that they look for. So the scouting side of things really tipped that away from somebody like Byron Buxton, who was, you know, probably consensus number one that year towards a surprise pick Correa. And what do you know, like three years later, he comes into the big leagues at 20 and is the best shortstop in the league. Yeah. What were some of those other key decisions? There's a lot of them, really. Like, one of them is how do you determine who you're going to keep? Okay. Like, we said that the organization was empty, more or less. The cupboards were dry. You come in, you have 300 players under contract all the way down from, you know, big leagues to triple A, double A, single A, rookie ball, Dominican. Surely there have to be some players who you're going to hang on to. You're not going to just burn the whole house down. But how do you decide? And how they decided in large measure was, again, looking for this growth mindset, looking for players who had the personal traits that would allow them to become more than it seemed that they could become. You know, a five foot five inch second baseman slap hitting guy who got $15,000 to sign out of Venezuela only after seven teams had passed on him. Like, no, the Astros did not predict when they came in that Jose Altuve would become the MVP of the American League at that height. But yes, they certainly identified in him some traits, perhaps coming in part from the fact that he was that size and had never nothing had ever come easy to him in his whole life, at least athletically. They identified traits that said, you know, this is a guy, maybe he'll be like a slap-hitting middle infield type, but this is a guy we want to keep. How much of ultimately winning the playoffs, the World Series, ends up being luck. (laughs) Well, ultimately, right? I mean, look, the fact is the playoffs in baseball, there's a lot of luck to begin with. Because even a best-of-seven series, any team can beat any team in a best-of-seven series. It's not like the NBA, right, where, I don't know, the Pelicans are, I guess they're pretty good now, the Mavericks this year are not going to beat the Warriors this year in a seven-game series. You could play those a thousand times, the Warriors would win every time. But it's certainly possible that the Padres can beat the Astros in a seven-game series. Maybe it would happen, I don't know, I'm spitballing, but 30% of the time, something like that, they could do that. So yeah, there's certainly luck all the way through. When you come down to Game 7, a one-game playoff essentially has happened last year between the Astros and the Dodgers. You know, Sig Meidel, uh, the data guy, calls it a coin toss competition, right? But it's a coin toss competition to decide what history was going to remember and which team history is going to remember. I think there's a little more to it than coin, than a coin toss. You know, there, there are these, again, these kind of intangible qualities that allow people to perform in certain situations and others not to. But I don't know, maybe it's 51% to 49%. Yeah. It certainly is a, a toss-up when you get all the way there. You wrote a lot in the book about this integration of the human element and culture onto the team as kind of that next iteration out of just the data-centric money ball. I was always curious why more teams don't 
embrace the importance of call it a good clubhouse guy, or as you describe Carlos Beltran in the book. In Verducci's book on the Cubs, he talks about Jason Hayward and the impact that he had, even though he wasn't hitting that well and sort of turning that last game around and sort of being instrumental in the Cubs championship. And similarly, you know, maybe tell a little bit of the story of Carlos Beltran on this team. Yeah. Well, I mean, Theo Epstein is another one who does recognize this, right? Because beyond Hayward, he also, you know, David Ross, there's actually an academic study that I cite in the book called the David Ross, or maybe it's called In Search of David, I think it's called the David Ross Effect, actually. This is a guy who hits it's like a 230 backup, 230 hitting backup catcher. But this is somebody that Theo wants on his teams. You know, he's on the Red Sox, he's on the Cubs for a reason. Same thing with a guy like Kyle Schwarber, who a lot of people think Theo is overly fond of. Well, there's a reason for it. And yeah, I think the reason that a lot of teams have trouble investing in this is because it's hard to know what it looks like, sort of. It's at least hard to define what it looks like. Okay, like you kind of get a sense of certain guys who keep things together, keep things positive are devoted to helping especially younger players improve every day. But it's hard to like put a number on it. Like how much are we paying for this? How much is it really worth? Stuff like that. And it's hard for the Astros to do that too. But especially after they kind of got good faster than they thought they would in 2015 and made the ALDS and then lost to the Royals who had this extra quality, this kind of relentlessness and everybody could see it, even though, I don't know, a lot of statistically minded people would kind of scoff at it. But I think one of Jeff Luna's strengths is that he realized that it was real and that it was worth trying to find and invest in, even if you didn't know exactly what you were looking for. Well, he did determine that, you know, he thought Carlos Beltran could still hit a lot of home runs at 40, which he actually didn't. But he signed him for another reason, because there are a lot of guys who could hit home runs on the free agent market. There was only one guy who was 40, nine-time All-Star, known as a great clubhouse guy wherever he'd been, experienced virtually everything you could on a, on a baseball field. That's why he brought in Carlos Beltran. And as I write in the book, I mean, in all sorts of real, if immeasurable ways, he, you know, really made that club come together, whether it's bridging the gap between Spanish-speaking players and English-speaking players, teaching guys like Carlos Correa how to read pitchers on a pitch-to-pitch basis. Correa attributes seven of his 24 home runs last year directly to Beltran, like things he showed him about tendencies that pitchers were following and stuff like that. And then in the World Series, even though he didn't get a hit, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but he played a very major behind-the-scenes role as well. Yeah, well, we can... We can save some of that for people to read the book, but it's an incredible story. And so we might as well tip it a little bit just so I can ask the question. Yeah, go for it. You know, Beltran reads you Darvish's pitches or certain pitches and then lets the rest of the team know. How common is that in baseball? I think it's pretty common, although probably not on a stage like that, you know. And it certainly takes a certain type of guy who's been doing it long enough and is attentive enough to be able to read. It's called when pitchers are tipping their pitches. Say sometimes before they throw, they're going to throw a curveball, they might hold the glove one way or hold their arm one way. When they're going to throw a fastball, they might hold it a different way. And Beltran developed this long ago. You know, I have a story back when he was young player trying to figure it out did not have the sort of role models that he one day wanted to become. He did this with Bartolo Colon back when Colon was, you know, not the Colon we know now, the <laughs> big sexy, right, who's kind of ageless. But back when he was a felt 100-mile-an-hour thrower, he realized that when he watched Colon enough, he could see 
that he did things differently when he's going to throw a fastball versus a breaking ball. And if you know what even the hardest thrower is going to throw and you're a big league hitter, you can hit it. And Beltran, if you look at the stats, had a lot of success kind of all of a sudden against Bartolo Colon. Yeah. In a situation like that, it sounds a lot like a poker game. It sounds a lot like you're watching someone's tendencies and you're playing poker, you figure it out, you figure their tell, and then you execute on it. In this situation, it seems strange in reading it that that wouldn't get exposed until the World Series. Well, sometimes, you know, things are always changing. Things are always in flux. Like maybe a pitcher does not do this for a long time, then all of a sudden he starts doing it. Or maybe it's so small that it takes a real expert poker player like Carlos Beltran to even see it. Like maybe computers one day will be able to see this. We're probably pretty close, actually, as far as motion analysis and things like that. But they don't have those tools quite yet. And I think the poker analogy is very apt because I draw this kind of extended blackjack analogy in the pool about, you know, properly taking advantage of probabilities in a way that a lot of people don't. And, you know, kind of properly using your gut, which you really shouldn't in blackjack, but maybe sometimes you do. That's right. I mean, all these blackjack players they had in the front office knew that what they needed was a poker player to round things off. And that poker player was Carlos Beltran. Yeah. What was it like being in the draft room for that, that <laughs> draft? It just it sounded there were so many balls in the air as you describe it. It sounded like uh, it sounded like the movie draft. I was, I was trying to be quiet, man. Like I, I, <laughs> I felt a bit out of place. I was kind of in the corner. I, I wasn't going to record it, so I was tapping notes on my laptop, but you know, trying to type quietly so like Nolan Ryan wouldn't glare at me, uh, something like that. But it really was, you know, it was exciting for somebody like me. First of all, knowing that this access would be really special and that readers would enjoy getting this sort of view that they, that they never get. But also knowing that, you know, I've been interested in what goes on in those rooms for a long time. And I'd asked a lot of teams over the years, like, can I just come fly on the wall, you know, just for a little bit, just see what the room is like. And they'd always said no. So to get a yes, to kind of start this whole thing off, was really exciting. But yeah, I certainly don't want to stand out in any way. What was the process of writing this book like? Because I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I think about the time frame you go from the World Series to this book coming <laughs> out a few weeks ago. And that's pretty compressed. It was compressed. It was. I guess what I would say is that I have been reporting the book and living the book in some ways since 2014. I have tons of reporting that I never used over the years as well, like notebooks filled with it. I maintained my relationships with the people in the book, like the players, front office guys over the years checked in as these various things were happening, 2015, 2016, 2017. I certainly had some more reporting to do after Jose Altuve threw to Yuli Gurriel to clinch that final out on November 1st. And I did a lot more, but you know, it was really go time right then. So kind of sold the book about Two and a half weeks later, on I wrote ten thousand word proposal, I should say, and then sold the book off of that about two and a half weeks later, and then I essentially gave myself, you know, I'm a magazine writer, so I I, I structured it as you have ten long magazine features, about six or seven thousand words, which are pretty long to do in ten weeks. So you know, one feature a week, and you're done. It was not easy. <laughs> it was tough on the family, but, but that's you, how I did, did it. Did you take time off to do it, or did you do it alongside? I took some leave. I, uh, SI gave me some leave. I mean, they're, obviously, the story reflects well on everybody there as well. So they gave me some leave to do it. Not very much. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look forward into baseball, what is the impact of data over time? I think the data advantage is narrowing. I do. I mean, 
you don't hear very much anymore about, oh, this team's onto some new kind of way of analyzing data or discovered some new sorts of data. Of course, I'm not going to tell you if they are, but it doesn't seem as if that's like a way to differentiate yourself going forward. I think the way to differentiate yourself going forward is to, first of all, maintain your command of cutting edge data. Like You need it to underpin everything you do, but to focus your work on trying to understand and quantify as best you can these softer factors that we discussed earlier. And also one thing that the Astros are really focused on right now is not necessarily improving how they select players or how they analyze players' past performances, but how they're going to improve the future performances of the players that they have. Now, part of that is what we were talking about before as far as the growth mindset. Like, they do certainly select four players who they believe have that growth mindset. And in fact, one of the things they look for is good grades, funny enough, for baseball players. I think good grades are a real indicator of a willingness to learn, which I guess makes some sense. But they've developed all sorts of techniques now to maximize a player's potential, really. Some of those are technology-based. You know, they've invested in this thing called Blast Motion, which is a disc that you can attach to a bat with a gyroscope in it and an accelerometer and can instantly kind of record the precise shape of a player's swing every time. And you can go back and see it. You can see which swings are your best and try to replicate those as much as you can. Things like that. Um, but one of the people leading the charge is actually Sig Meidel, who's no longer their director of decision sciences. He's now been elevated to the position of special assistant to the GM process improvement. And that means for the first time since Little League, he's been putting on minor league uniforms, traveling around to their minor league affiliates and sitting on the bench and actually like observing how these analytical techniques are being applied on the field, where there are gaps. You know, it's funny, you think, like, really, are they accepting an analyst, like this this data guy on the bench in a baseball clubhouse? That's one reason why SIG is is a good guy to do it, because as you'll learn from the book, uh, there are few more likable people in the world. So even baseball players have to have to be fond of him. So there, you've got performance improvements. Look, I talked to a analyst from the Indiana Pacers, actually, the other day. He reached out to me after having read the book, and he was specifically interested in the chapter on Beltron and team chemistry. Cause he said, you know, you know, for us, like team chemistry right now is like the Holy grail in the NBA, just what sets some teams apart in that way from others. It's, it's team chemistry. I guess the best way to describe it is what factors lead a team to be more than the sum of its parts, right? Like when you take basketball players, you take one plus two plus three plus four plus five. Like why are some teams much better than that? sum? What do you think the future of baseball is? I have young kids who find baseball too boring to watch. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in the last couple of years, the more you have infield shifts, the more it becomes a game of home runs and strikeouts. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just biased because I watch the Yankees. (laughs) No, you're right. But it seems like attendance is down. And the parallels in my world with like active and passive management are almost like uncanny. Mm -hmm. It's this paradox of skill that Michael Mobison talks about that because both sides are getting better and better and better. There's just hard to differentiate. What happens to baseball? I'm somebody who thinks that reports of baseball's demise are kind of exaggerated. It is a different sort of business from the NFL and the NBA, to which it's always compared. It's a much more local business. It's much more like steady business. You know, it's on 162 nights a year in every bar in the city, right? It's, it's not like these like big, like Super Bowl, you know, like football Sunday. It's just kind of always there. It's like a, a cumulative 
sort of thing. So business-wise, it's doing very well, you know, if you look at the, the numbers. I'm also not somebody who believes that, you know, like the commissioner seems to. Like, you know, if the games are like two hours and 57 minutes on average instead of three hours and eight minutes, like that's going to be the savior for this thing. Like the kids are going to love it because it's like 11 minutes shorter or, or whatever I said. I don't know. It's hard to predict. I think I think that they don't have to make drastic changes right now. I do think perhaps like Manfred, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, is onto something about the need to develop stars, which is harder because it doesn't have this like national, international profile that the NBA has. But somebody told me the other day that Mike Trout has the same Q rating as Kenneth Fareed. Right. Like he's like the same <laughs> fame level as Kenneth Freed, like the backup now, I guess, power forward on the Nets. That's probably something they should try to fix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next big project going to be? Man, I feel like I just wrote this one. <laughs> you know, I'm back to back to Sports Illustrated. I'm just looking for another story. I'm working on some things right now that should be the magazine soon. I actually just had a cover story last month in the Where Are They Now issue, catching up with Sammy Sosa. Yeah, I who's saw that. has been uh, in exile for... A long time from seems Chicago. Like he's pretty happy, though. He seems happy. I mean, he's also kind of as happy as somebody can be when they're not been to the city where they made their fame in like over a decade. So it's this kind of like strange saga. And he looks very different, as anybody knows who's seen him recently. And he's kind of living this international life where he can go anywhere but Chicago. So, <laughs> you know, I always look for stories, always look for stories that are grounded in sports, but for which sports is almost an excuse to tell a broader story that has implications for people in the world, you know, outside the lines, as they say. All right, let's turn to some closing questions. And my first question, I think we probably already know the answer to, but I'll ask it anyway. What was your favorite sports moment? (laughs) You know, I'm not going to say the one you think. (laughs) It was actually, I've been waiting for this for so long, but when Yale played Baylor, in the NCAA basketball tournament a couple years ago. We'd been waiting for them to make the tournament for, like, ever, because it's always Princeton and Penn, more or less. So we went up to Providence, where they happened to play. We probably wouldn't have gone if it had not been anywhere farther than that. And they beat Baylor. And we were there in person. You know, Torian Prince, who's not in the Hawks, was the star of Baylor. He was furious afterwards. But uh, I don't know. You know, I don't want to say I'm jaded, but I go to a lot of sports games, and I don't tend to have, like, emotional reactions to them too much. But uh, that one I did. That was a big one. All right. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? As a baseball rider, I tend to uh, travel the Northeast Corridor quite a lot, which means I tend to take Amtrak quite a lot. So, well, I wouldn't say I'm a quiet car enforcer on Amtrak. I kind of leave that to, you know, usually older ladies to tell people to shut up <laughs> or move to another car. But talking in the quiet car is like one of the most annoying things you can do to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that on the <laughs> daily Metro North. <laughs> What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? it's not like personal risk, but I, I think in some ways writing this book as I did was a significant risk. Cause I'd never written a book before and here I am signing on to write something that, you know, was going to do really my de- professional reputation is going to depend, depend on a lot. And I'm going to have to trust myself to be able to write this book and make it good in essentially three months. And I'm going to contractually agree to do this. And it was really a new world for me. So professionally anyway you know writing this book is certainly the biggest risk i've taken even though in some ways it was kind of a i had no choice because fate seemed to uh, command it what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you i mean it's not like an aphorism or anything but really is just you know i'm trying to say it in a way that's 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 not a that's not like a catchphrase but just you know kind of 
treat other people as you as you would want to be treated yourself. Perhaps no great insight there, but I think it's very easy, especially in our current environment, our current political environment, to not use that as a as your golden rule. But you know, for me, I try to. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? You know, I try to read academic journals when I come across. You know, they're often cited in news reports, like, oh, a new study says this, new study says that. It's kind of quickly summarized in maybe 300 words or something like that. Usually that's not all there is to it. So if there's one that I might think can apply to my work or one that I'm just interested in, I'll try and get a hold of the full article. And it is true they're hard to find. Like, you can't, like, find them on the Internet. Like, you usually have to subscribe to journals that are very expensive unless you happen to be, like, a member of a university or something and have that access what I found is if you just email the professors, a lot of times they'll send it to you and they'll talk to you about it because, you know, they're they're interested that somebody's interested in their work who is not in their usual uh, field. So that's actually in the Beltron chapter. I cite this study that these organizational psychologists did on uh, organizational chemistry and things like that. And I established a correspondence with them. They sent me a lot of their work and we went from there. So that was pretty that's cool. That's great. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It's funny. I swear I'm not trying to bring this full circle or be cheesy, but it is from the Astros, and I applied it to writing the book, and it is applying process over outcome or focusing on process over outcome. I think a lot of us, Ted, as we grow up, or maybe overly achievement focused, you know, focused on the grade that's going to come at the end of the course or even how much money we're going to make at the end of the year. I know I probably was to some degree, at least the grade thing. I'm a journalist, so maybe not the letter. But, um, <laughs> you know, the Astros had a long term goal, but they knew they would not get there without the day to day decisions that they made, that each decision they made, everything they did each day would pile up and perhaps the outcome would be good and maybe it wouldn't. But that was not in their control. It was in control of what they did every day. So when I was writing this book, that's what I focused on. I didn't think about, oh, the hardcover is going to feel so great when I hold it in my hands. It's going to be fun doing all these book events, although it certainly has been. I just thought, you know, I gave myself a goal of 1,300 words each day. I'm going to make these 1,300 words as good as I possibly can, and then I'm going to move on to the next day. And that's kind of what the Astros did. So I have to give them credit for uh, for inspiring my process in that way as well. Well, Ben, I picked this book up a couple weekends ago and pretty much read it cover to cover, which doesn't happen that much. So it's a fantastic read. It's great storytelling, a lot of great lessons. Uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ted. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list. 